great singing this morning. What a great song we just finished with. Um, aren't you grateful for Jesus this morning? Just what he does in our lives and what he brings us out of and what he brings us into. To be God be the glory for that. If you will, take your Bible and find your place in uh, Luke chapter 13. We're trudging right along through Luke's gospel. We're going to continue to work through this chapter that we've been in for the last couple Sundays. But uh, this morning, I just want to speak to this subject. Strive to enter. I told you last Sunday that we are uh, going to be in uh, two or three texts here over the few Sundays that are going to be very gospel-focused, very uh, direct, calling people to repentance and faith. And that was last Sunday. It is again this morning. And so we're going to see here a strong imperative to strive, to work toward entering the kingdom of God. That's not to say that we earn our salvation. Obviously, Paul in Ephesians 2 makes it very clear. Uh, it is by grace through faith, and yet we are to lean into that according to what Jesus is going to tell us this morning from this passage of Scripture. Alistair Begg, I don't know if you know that name or if you uh, have ever listened to him as a preacher, but he's the senior pastor of Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio. If you've heard of his name, if you've listened to him, you know he has a strong Scottish accent. He is a fine preacher and expositor of God's Word. Uh, he's on the radio. In fact, his teaching ministry, Truth for Life, can be heard over 1,800 stations nationwide. Well, Begg, Pastor Begg was in Cambridge, Massachusetts several years ago preaching at a convocation at one of the seminaries up there. And uh, on the day that he was to preach, he got up early, went to a local restaurant over by the Harvard Yard, and just wanted to put some finishing touches on his sermon. It's what all of us preachers do. Every Sunday morning, I get up uh, early like I do every day of the week, and I put final touches on what I want to say on that coming Sunday morning. So he does this. He's sitting there in the restaurant, and he's there so early, he literally sees Cambridge wake up. He sees all the people beginning to file in and fill the restaurant up. And so as he's watching people, he recognizes or realizes that there is a large variety of people. Weird people, wonderful people, but the scope, broad scope of different kinds of people. There are folks that obviously had slept on the street who have come in. It's others that they uh, clearly uh, seem to be regulars. I mean, they walk up and they say, hey, I'll have, you, you want what you normally get. And so they just get the, the, the regular uh, meal that they would get day in and day out there. And so he's just watching all of this. He's in a university culture. It's, it's Cambridge. Harvard University is close by. There's other universities. And he's just beginning to, to sense an overwhelming feeling of, of being there, a feeling of insignificance. Think about it. As a preacher of the gospel, as one who would hold to the inerrancy of the word of God, that just doesn't fit in that university culture. And so he sees himself as insignificant and he feels really small. Well, two things, by God's grace, happened that morning that encouraged him. First thing was this. A sparrow came and landed on the table that he sat in at inside of the restaurant. That would not only kind of freak you out and make you wonder who left the door open, but as he's contemplating how in the world this sparrow got into the restaurant and is it going to steal my hash brown or not, he's also thinking about what Jesus had to say about sparrows and how he takes care of the sparrows and how they're loved by the Lord. And so that encourages him that morning. The second thing happened was he looked across the aisle from where he was sitting and he noticed a, a young Asian girl who was intently reading a book that looked like the Bible. So he looked a little 
closer and he saw that it was indeed the scriptures that she was reading. And so he asked her, he says, I see you're reading the Bible. Are you a Christian? And she responded like this with a big old smile on her face. She said, oh, yes, I have found the narrow way. That statement puzzled him, found the narrowed, narrow way. He had never heard someone describe their testimony and those words before. And frankly, as a pastor, as a Christian, 25 plus years, 27 years, I've never heard someone describe their testimony with that type of statement. So the two of them began to talk, and the young lady shared how she had come from South Korea to study at Harvard, and, and, and he's just absolutely amazed by her story. Right here in front of him was this young lady 10,000 miles away from her Buddhist home with its three million gods, which in and of itself is the antithesis of the narrow way. But here she is sitting in this restaurant, studying and reading her Bible, talking about a Christian faith. On top of that, she's... She's been plunged into the, the, the culture, the university culture of Harvard, which absolutely tolerates everything with the exception of the narrowness of the gospel. Despite those influences, she's profoundly solid in her Christian faith, or maybe it's because of those influences. It's led her to be able to express that faith with such an unabashed acumen as the narrow way. As you might imagine, the pastor was greatly encouraged that morning, and he went off to preach in communication, and he preached. He preached the narrow way of the gospel. The young Harvard student had understood and appropriated a kingdom truth that today as we think about this, we realize that too many Christians gloss over, especially if we live in a friendly Christian subculture. And I would say that we sort of live in that friendly subculture here in Powhatan. This young lady from South Korea recognized that entrance into the God, to kingdom of God, God's kingdom, is narrow. This morning as we move forward to the next pericope in this gospel that Luke has written for us, we're going to see here that Jesus presents at least three truths. The three truths we're going to look at. But he's going to give us this imperative that, that leads us to understand these three truths. And the imperative is, is that we need to strive to enter the kingdom of God. And so if you've got your place there, let's begin reading in verse 22. Luke says, He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? He said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And you will begin to say, well, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out. People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. We read these verses here. We see the Lord Jesus is not only announcing the kingdom of God. But if you listen intently, you, you notice and you caught that he's also urging us to enter it, right? 
Now, contextually, we understand what uh, verse 22 tells us is that Jesus is no longer in the synagogue. I, I mentioned last Sunday that the, the, the passage we were looking at last week was the last time we'll see Jesus preaching, teaching on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Now, he's going to do some other things in the, on the Sabbath, but no longer will he be seen preaching in the synagogue. Now, contextually, he's moving toward Jerusalem. He's moving toward the place where a cross awaits him. His appeal here for the people to strive to enter through the narrow door, it comes in response to a question that's asked him. A person comes up and says, Lord, will there be many who are saved or are there just going to be a few who are saved? And we in no way have, have no way of knowing what the intention was behind this question. It was perhaps asked with a smug sense of self-complacency. I mean, after all, the general mindset of the Jew was that they were going to enter the kingdom of God, all Jews, except for maybe those few terribly evil Jews. So in other words, only the worst of the worst Jew would be excluded from the kingdom, but everyone else, because they were of Abraham, goes to the kingdom of God. I mean, this was explicitly taught in the Mishnah. It's also possible the question was asked from a sincere heart, uh, from a a position of someone who wanted to know the depth and the breadth of God's saving love. Lord, do you weep over the lostness of the people in this land? And so are you going to save all of them? Are you going to save the vast majority of them? So we don't know the disposition behind the question. We can only speculate. Regardless of why or where the question came from, the crowd who heard it would have expected Jesus to affirm the teaching of the Mishnah. They wanted to hear that eternally everything was all right with them. They also wanted to hear that all the Gentiles were going to be excluded from the kingdom. So the question was good. And it's a question that we ought to consider today. That's why Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has included it in the gospel because we need to ask the question and we need to tackle the question of what is the kingdom of God going to look like and how big is it going to be? I believe the answer is both relative and absolute. Relatively speaking, we know that many people have been, many people are being, and many people will be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we should in every way expect to see millions, if not billions upon billions of people one day in that setting, like John talks about in Revelation 7 verse 9, where he looked out and he saw a great multitude, so vast and so numerous that no one could count. We should expect to see around the throne of Jesus Christ as the king of kings, billions upon billions upon billions of people one day. People from all times and all nations gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ. Yet by comparison, many more people will enter a Christless eternity. A parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said this, he says, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And so to answer the question here, Jesus leads us to understand that the answer is relative. What are you comparing it to? Millions and billions of people will be in the kingdom of God, but there will be more than that, vastly more than that, who are in a devil's hell. So the answer here is relative, but the answer is also absolute. It's absolute in that there is only one way for people to be saved. 
Verse 24 tells us that the gate is narrow. It's a one-way type of gate. It's a gate that is absolute. There's no way to get around it. There's no way to get above it. There's no way to get under it. You have to go through this narrow passage into the kingdom of God. And so contrary to what people in a pluralistic culture today like we live in want to believe, Jesus is the only door. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only path. There are not many ways to God. There's one way to God. That is through the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Son, who came to this earth in human flesh, took on your sin on his own body, bore it on the cross, shed his blood for your forgiveness. On top of that, when you think about all of this, the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking in this salvation. So Jesus instructs each of us to strive to enter through this narrow door. Three things I want you to see, three truths I want you to see this morning uh, as we consider these words that Jesus has said. First thing I want you to consider is this. Full access into the kingdom is available today, but may not be tomorrow. It's available today, but may not be available tomorrow. This last weekend, I was fishing, and... um, First thing, last Saturday morning, a week ago, I, I must have put my sunglasses in the passenger seat in the boat. I got up, unhooked the boat from the dock because I was fishing by myself. I stepped off the deck, put my knee into the seat, smashed a brand new pair of Costa Del Mars. That was a great beginning to a good day of fishing. Kind of like rips your heart like, oh. Now, full disclosure, my brother-in-law is an optometrist. I got him at a discounted price. Figured he'd help me out again, right? So this whole past week, I've been on the phone with my sister like, hey, can you get these? And I found out they've discontinued the line. And the only, brand, the only model that I, my model, the only glasses I can get are three terrible looking frames, right? Frames that no one else wants. And that's where like, they're like $100 cheaper than all the other models. But it's the one that I feel like fits my face the best. And so I went into this thinking, no big deal. I can get these exact glasses again. I can get them replaced. My brother-in-law's going to hook me up, maybe. Not free, but he's going to give me a discount. I'm not paying full price. I'm just paying half price, maybe. But I found out Friday, nope, discontinued. The, time, the clock is ticking on that. So so we're not ever promised. So we may have an entrance into this wonderful world of you can get sunglasses at a cheaper price and find the ones that you like, but even that clock is ticky. When we think of the kingdom of God, the same is true even to the nth degree. Kingdom is available today, but it's not necessarily available tomorrow. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter will not be able. The subject in this verse is an understood you. It's an imperative statement. He's saying, you strive to enter the narrow door. And Jesus' words here assaulted his hearer's complacency. And so he's striving to, to rattle them. He clearly informed that many, meaning most of them, would not make it through that narrow door. That they would not make it because the door was not open and available to them. I mean, Jesus is the door, and he's standing right in front of them. So that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, you're not going to make it into the kingdom because the door's not wide open. I'm here, baby. He's saying that many will not make it in there because they choose not to, and the window will close. That window of opportunity will close. 
And it's going to close because they've refused to enter through the narrow door. And so for this reason, Jesus here called them to consider their ways and to make every effort to enter. They shouldn't worry about what others may have thought. They shouldn't wonder about what their family is going to say and think about. Here, here you are a Jew or here I am a Jew and I'm, I'm considering stepping out of that and following this radical named Jesus Christ. He's saying don't worry about those things. Don't consider yourselves with those things. Instead, worry about yourselves. Worry about the condition of your soul. Jesus here stood before them, ready to grant full access into the kingdom to anyone who would believe on him for salvation. He is the door. Two millennia have passed since this day. And Jesus still stands before us as the door. Jesus still stands with arms wide open. He still stands with with a, a willing embrace for all who would call upon the name of the Lord. I mean, what does Paul say in Romans 10? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That still is true today as it was when Paul preached it. And the disposition of the Lord Jesus Christ standing before these people there in Luke chapter 13 is still true today. He's still standing and he's saying the kingdom of God is available, but... It may not be tomorrow. Look at verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer, I do not know where you come from. You see, the door will eventually be closed. So there's urgency in his tone. Do you catch that as you read it? Do you sense his urgency? I mean, the imperative strive to enter comes with a sense of strong urgency. And then he just magnifies that as he continues the conversation. No one of us knows when the master of the house is going to rise up and bolt the door. When that door is bolted shut, it's over. And so that tells us this morning, time is limited. It's available today, even this morning, as you're sitting here in this room listening to us online. As I, as the preacher of the gospel here, standing before you, if you are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, what you need to know this morning is that me voicing the gospel to you means Jesus is standing before you, his arms are open wide, and his invitation is to come. And so the invitation is open. The door is wide open. And you are invited to respond in faith and repentance to that. But that does not mean the door is open tomorrow. The window is short. This past Friday, two days ago, was the 30th anniversary of my dad's death. September 22nd, 1993, he died around 4 p.m.-ish in the afternoon. Died in a work accident. He was 35 years old. My mom was 33 years old. I was 15. I was a sophomore in high school. My sister was 13 and an eighth grader. And to this day, I can remember I played football and the high school that I was attending was across the highway from the hospital in our city there in Springdale. And I remember as I was getting out of practice that afternoon around 5.15, hearing ambulances come to the hospital. And I believe with all of my heart, they were carrying my father's body. I grew up in a Christian home, sort of. Told you my testimony. My dad was a believer. That gives me great comfort to know that my, my, my dad was a follower of Jesus. And so the end for us with him in that moment physically was not the end uh, of him. And it's definitely not the end of our relationship. We'll see each other one day on the other side of, uh, of, of the grave. 
But my dad, though he came to Christ as a kid, walked with, at a guilty distance from the Lord for many years. So I grew up in a troubled home. I grew up in a home maybe some of you grew up in. Maybe it's indicative of the home you're in now. Where you've got a professing faith that had no action behind it. And so you can just imagine the things that come with sin. And so that's the home I grew up in. And so there was a troubled family. In fact, it was so troubled that my mom left my dad the, the summer, the beginning of the summer of my going into my freshman year. She was gone for about eight weeks. It was a tragic moment for our family, but God turned that into good. Got my dad's attention. My dad experienced genuine revival in his life that summer. And so for the next year, man, my dad was a changed man. Made sure his family was in church every single Sunday. I went kicking and screaming. So, I, I mean, I'd go to worship, and I enjoyed that. I didn't really like Sunday school too much. And so, I mean, I was, we grew up in a mega church, and so I could kind of just walk the halls and, and float and, and usually go unnoticed. And so I, didn't, I wasn't fully in at that point. But my dad was committed to make sure that we were in church on those Sundays. Last memory I have of my dad was that Wednesday morning. Uh, we're all getting up, getting ready for the day. I, my sister and I are going to school. We walked to school. My dad was getting ready to go to work. The last memory I have of him is him sitting there in the, in the dining area of our house, kitchen, dining room area. He's reading his old King James Bible and praying before he goes to work. That's a good memory to have. That morning, we went to school. They went to work. We never anticipated getting a phone call. Hey, Jim is in the ER. You need to come. That's my dad. Never got that anticipation. Never anticipated walking to that ER because uh, I came later because I had to stay home because I was doing homework and my dad was typically in the ER with some sort of accident because of the nature of his, um, his industry. And so when I walk in there, it was pretty serious when I see people crying and, and they walk me into a little side room and you obviously know it's, it's the worst of the worst. We never expected that. But you know what? We were never promised anything less than that. We were never promised that dad would come home. We were never promised that we would come home. So we need to understand this morning, as we think about the offer that's on the table before us, Jesus here is granting full access into the kingdom. And he's saying, my arms are wide open for you if you will come. But tomorrow the offer may not be there. Why? You could die today. You could die this afternoon, God forbid. We need to understand that. We need to grip that. We need to feel that Today, There's a second truth I want you to see. Familiarity with the kingdom is insufficient to grant access into it. Jesus here pointed out that those who had been shut out by the master, they were asking to be let into the house. They said, Lord, open to us. And then the master responds by making it very clear. I don't know you. I don't know where you come from. Two different times he makes this very emphatic statement. I have no idea who you are. And I have no idea where you come from. Depart from me. Get out of my house. These people go on to, to press the issue. And they, they, they say, hey, 
we listened to your teaching. We, we listened to your preaching. We, we sat down and ate with you. We fellowshiped with you. We, we were around you. We're familiar with you. Surely you know us. And he says, no, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me. So we see here familiarity with the kingdom is never sufficient to grant access. Instead, it's nothing more than an easy ticket to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place where we can view in and see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets in the kingdom and, and all the people of God. And, and we can see that and, and we are left out of that. Jesus here was making the case that their perceived Jewish privilege had better make a spiritual difference or it's for nothing. And this morning I would add to that and I would say our distinct privilege as Baptists sitting in this church that has such a heritage, it better make some spiritual difference in your life or it's for nothing. It ought to lead you to faith and repentance in your life. It ought to lead you to getting on your knees before God. I'm telling you, you cannot just attend church and expect it to change your life. Strive to enter, Jesus says. Jews here had a presumption that many of us have in our own lives. This presumption put them in grave danger of a devil's hell. You see, they presumed that salvation... Would come to them just because they're Jews. And the presumption that we have today is that salvation comes to us because we're part of a professing church. We're religious people. We can quote scripture. We can explain the gospel. We can tell you a little bit about Jesus and a little bit about the things of Jesus. And we can speak the language and we understand what's going on. And we're in this subculture of Christianity. And so we're fine while our lives look like hell. That's where the Jews were. And that's where we are many ways today. By all accounts, these Jews looked apart. And today, by all accounts, we look the part. But many of them, many of us, have never came to saving faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So the Lord's words here in these verses are, are, not, to meant, are not meant to inject fear into our lives. They're meant to draw us in and take a serious assessment of our spiritual condition. Am I a follower of Jesus Christ? Pastor, I prayed a prayer. Pastor, I walked an aisle. Pastor, I was baptized by so-and-so at certain such, such and such church on such and such day. We can name all those things. Has it made a difference here? And is it expressed in how you do this? You live life. You see, Matthew 7 is a parallel chapter to Luke 13. Matthew 7, he, goes, he says there, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. We may call Jesus Lord, we may refer to him as Lord, but there's a big difference between professing and believing on him. So we need to assess, assess ourselves to make sure that we are indeed walking through that narrow door. A passing acquaintance with God, with God is not the same as knowing God. There's an eternal difference between knowing and Knowing God and knowing him personally. Knowing about God and knowing him personally. See, familiarity with the kingdom is always insufficient. So we should strive to enter the narrow door. There's a third truth. Fear of God's judgment should motivate entrance into the kingdom. Look at verse 28. He says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out. 
Can you imagine how that would have felt to them? No, 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 no. I'm of Abraham. I follow Isaac. I'm of the lineage of Jacob. And I believe the prophets. I'm reading them. No, he says you're excluded. Verse 29, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Man, that's a beautiful picture of Revelation 7, 9. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. What we see in all of this is that the judgment of God is a real and present danger. Hell is a real place. You see, in this story, a door is shut, a verdict is made, and a sentence is given. God's judgment in all of that is just. Amen? We all deserve a devil's hell. Two complementary things kept these people out of the kingdom. First, they possessed no relationship with the master. So just go with me in the text here. Go with me in what Jesus is laying out. They, they come to the master and the door is shut. It's bolted. You can't get in. They're standing outside and knocking. And he says... I don't know you. He's like, no, no, no. You do know us. We fellowshiped with you in the streets. We listened to you teach. We ate with you. We did all of these things. He's like, depart from me. I don't know you. See, they possess no relationship with the master, which is indicative by him saying, I don't know who you are, or I don't know where you come from. Twice Jesus issues this categorical denial of relationship. So he doesn't know them, even though they're claiming to know him. So to the master, they were nothing more than strangers. And today, sitting here in this room listening to us, you may be in that boat. You know about God. You know about Jesus. You know a little bit of his word. You know those things. You're acquainted with the things we do in church. And so you would be, if the door is shut in your face and their access into the kingdom is denied, you would be knocking there saying, no, 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 no. I've got my badge. I know the language. I know these things. I've been a part of religious activities. And Jesus would say to you, like the master, depart from me. I don't know you. That ought to create fear. The fear of God in our lives. The fear of judgment that we rightly deserve. Secondly, they trusted in their superficial knowledge of the master. Their familiarity with God inhibited their fear of God. Jesus goes on to frankly correct their soteriology, correct their theology of salvation. You see, salvation comes to those who in faith have turned to Jesus and away from their sin. God's just judgment, on the other hand, rightly comes to those who have rejected him. That's what he wants them to understand. It comes to them regardless of how familiar they may be with his ways. So this judgment is a real place of torment. The Bible is very clear about this torment that we're going to experience or, or those who are outside of Jesus and die. It's a place of torment that's awaiting those people. It begins in a place called hell. Luke 16 talks about this place that we, the Bible refers to as hell. It's a place of torment. It's a place of agony. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. 12.5 actually is the verse there. But that place of torment will culminate in a place that's referred to in Revelation 20, verse 15, as the lake of fire. And so hell is a temporary place of judgment where people are cast into upon death as they're awaiting the final judgment. 
And that final judgment comes after the millennium. The final judgment comes at the end of all things when Satan himself will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ and he will be cast into the lake of fire. And so those people who reject Jesus, who deny the kingdom of God and are denied access into the kingdom of God, they will be granted access into the place they, place they deserve. That is hell and the lake of fire. And in both of those places, we see this picture of scripturally of weeping. I believe this weeping is partly due to regret. It talks about here how you're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets and the fact that you're not there in the kingdom. There's going to be regret for all eternity. Sinners will remember those moments when they knowingly and willingly rejected the free gift of the gospel. That'll make you weep for all of eternity. It sees, seems that sinners will be able to at least see in part the beauty of heaven from the pits of torment. We, we see the picture here of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the kingdom, or the, the prophets in the kingdom. You go to Luke 16, what I was sort of referring to earlier, and what you see there is Abraham's bosom. That, that story that Jesus told, that Lazarus, that man who went to hell, or, or the, the, the rich man who went to hell versus Lazarus, he looks up into Abraham's bosom and he sees all of it. He sees Lazarus. So there's some sort of way, it seems, that those who are in torment eternally in a place called hell will be able to gaze into the kingdom of God in heaven, and that will create great regret in them. I don't know all the details of that. We just got a couple windows into that. I'm not going to build a theology around that, but that seems to be what the Lord Jesus here is laying before us. And so this image will torment sinners for all of eternity. I rattle someone's cage. <laughs> it's also going to be a place of weeping because of the torment sinners will endure for all eternity. It's going to be a place of never-ending pain, as the Bible describes very loosely. Both places, there's going to be gnashing of teeth. This phrase, gnashing of teeth, speaks of rage, fierce rage. So while sinners will lament their failure to come to Christ, it's never going to lead them to repentance. Not one single person, not one single demon, never the devil himself will ever lament their and regret their actions in this life to the point they say, Jesus, you're king. That's, that opportunity is past. That that. that that ship has sailed, but instead, even in their regret, even in their lament, even in their remorse, they will be led to rage against Christ and his kingdom. They will watch Jesus and believers from the pit of hell, and they will gnash their teeth. They will join the demons of hell and gnash their teeth against the Lord and his people. Many times we might read this gnashing of teeth and say, well, that's torment that's brought to sinners because they're being punished in hell. And yes, there's probably some of that. That's just aiding or adding to that agony and punishment, eternal punishment that they rightly deserve. But I believe the main focus of gnashing of teeth is those sinners who are so re rebellious against God that even in their remorse of their decisions are never led to faith and repentance. So like rabid dogs, they gnash their teeth at the Lord Jesus Christ and his people for all of eternity. A miserable experience. 
So Jesus' depiction of this hellish place and how people end up there was meant to motivate these Jewish listeners. Again, in their minds, they were first in line to receive the blessing and the rewards of the kingdom. But their rejection of Christ, according to verse 30, seems to have put them at the last of the line, the end of the line. The rejection of the Lord Jesus meant that the Lord was turning to the Gentiles. And so we do see a few Jews. The apostles are Jews. The early church is full of Jews. We see a large uh, conglomerate of Gentiles that come into the kingdom. But by and large, the Jewish people have been put on the back burner. I think that's what verse 30 is leading us to believe here. But really what we need to see more than anything is that our spiritual, quote-unquote, privilege is for nothing if it doesn't lead us to a healthy fear of God that leads us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what it means to strive to enter the narrow door. So Jesus is asked if those who would be saved would be few. This morning, as we contemplate this question, we need to just hold very tenderly the judgment of God. Hebrews 10.31 tells us how dangerous it is to fall into the hands the judging hands of God. So as Jesus has asked this question, and as we contemplate it this morning, we better make sure that we're striving to make sure that we are part of that very narrow number. May the fear of God's judgment motivate each of us to strive to enter his kingdom through Jesus Christ. As we end this morning, uh, yesterday was a really good day to watch college football. That's a strange transition, I know, but you'll, you'll catch the point in a minute. It was raining outside, so you couldn't do anything outside. We had good games on TV that were competitive, so it was fun to watch. And so it was a great day to watch football. We had a lot of close games. We had a lot of games that went down to the wire. It was just a, a lot of fun. There were several, I think six or seven top 25 matchups that took place yesterday. And if you watch the TV, and most of those stadiums, especially those ranked games, were packed to the gill. So I was watching yesterday evening my Arkansas Razorbacks going down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana to take on the LSU Tigers in Death Valley, which is always an interesting place to play. That's become a pretty good rivalry between LSU and Arkansas. And so as I'm watching that on television there in that stadium that they refer to as Death Valley, 102,000 Tigers and Hogs, largely Tigers, were in that stadium cheering their team. Stadium size in the SEC, which is my, my kindred, that's a big deal. It's a point of pride. Man, we got 110 in Neyland. We got 92,000 in Athens, Georgia. In the SEC, that's, that's braggadocious type things. LSU got 90 or 102,000. Arkansas, 74,000 people. That, that's a large crowd of people that's packed into a stadium. So, like, Fable, Arkansas, where my hogs are from, you've got 74,000 plus people in a stadium in a city that's only 85,000 people. They're coming from all over the state. It's a big deal because in the SEC, right, it only means more. I think most of us like a big crowd and we like to be part of something special. Amen? We would like to walk into a movie theater for the most part, and it's full. It means that something's going on here. We want to come into a church and see that it's not just us four and no more, that there's, there's something happening here. We want to go to a football game and experience that 
experience, that, that atmosphere of a big-time game. Yesterday was a good day of football. Coming from a Kentucky fan. <laughs> One day, believers from all time and all nations are going to gather around the throne of God to worship him together. It's going to put any SEC, ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12, whatever, to shame in that glorious event. See, nothing in this life can come close to what that day in Revelation 7-9 is going to be like. The gathering of people are going to be so large that no one will be able to count. You say, no one? Not even Jesus? Of course Jesus knows the numbers of hair on your head. He'll know the number of people that are there. They're in a book. Amen? But we're not going to be able to count it. It's so magnanimous. Uh, Unfortunately, the crowd in hell is going to be even bigger. You see, in the SEC, we're always thinking about how big our stadium is, and what we realize is someone's always got a bigger stadium. You go to Michigan, they got what? The big house, right? 110 or so thousand people, 108,000, 112, I don't know where it's at. It's the big house. You got Pasadena, California, which is big as well. There's always something bigger. Here's what I know about what Jesus is telling us in this passage. You want to know who's going to have the bigger house? Hell. Why? Because there's so many more people that say, I want my way rather than God's way. And Jesus stands before us this morning and says, don't choose that way. Choose my way. Strive to enter. The way is narrow. There's only one door. You're not getting in multiple doors. I'm the door. You're only coming through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm the door. But when you come through this door, oh, this is so good. There's life here. There's forgiveness here. There's restoration here. There's everything that you've ever wanted, needed, desired in life that lasts and is good and that is satisfied. It's in my kingdom. Strive to enter. This morning, could you respond like that young lady from South Korea sitting across the aisle from Pastor Alistair Begg and saying, oh, yes, I found the narrow way. Can you say that this morning? If you can't. If you can't say, I've never found the narrow way, I've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, today is the day for you to respond. Not trying to manipulate, not trying to scare you, but you're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that it's available. We thank you that it's free. We thank you today that there's a door standing before each and every one of us. And many in this room have entered through that door. And we're in relationship with Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, some believe they've entered that door. But they stand on the outside. And there's coming a day the door will be shut and they will be excluded. There's some who've never even got close to the door. They don't even know what the door is until today, and they're sitting here, and they've heard, and now they're beginning to understand. And I just pray that through the power of the Spirit of God, the inspiration of the Spirit, you'd open our hearts and minds to the truth that the Lord Jesus has laid before us, and that our number one desire would be to strive to enter the narrow door. Help us to faith into Jesus. God, help us to turn from sin and self. May we respond this morning in faith with repentance. It's time's yours. Trust you in it. Now give us boldness, courage, and an openness to say yes to Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You've heard the invitation. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. 
If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.